Well, good day, everyone out there in the online world. And as we uh, move toward uh, a rather significant time in the church history uh, here in California, particularly, I wanted to uh, introduce a couple of things and offer a word of encouragement, maybe a little bit of instruction uh, concerning some of the things that uh, I have been receiving personally via email. Uh, I've seen uh, a plethora of comments on social media, basically implying that any churches that do not open, the, pa uh, the pastor is either a coward or he is bowing to the laws of man. Now, let me just say this. There are hundreds and most likely even thousands of churches here in California who are under a lease agreement or a rental agreement in which there is a clause that states they cannot conduct any illegal activities on the premises owned by another person. There are an equal number of churches, if not more, who meet in community facilities or school properties who are closed under the governor's directive and they cannot have church. So let me just say this, let's stop the finger pointing uh, toward pastors who are unable for legal reasons to open their churches. You could be the most courageous Christian since the apostle Paul, but if the school in which you meet is closed, you can't meet there. So let's be more sensitive out there in the social media community, as well as the emails that may be sent uh, to pastors such as myself, uh, accusing people of uh, bowing to uh, the government instead of obeying God. Now, secondly, I'm also seeing a lot of talk out there on social media, which I think needs a little bit of clarity concerning some of the things that are going on regarding the reopening of the church and specifically the statement of the President of the United States uh, this past week regarding churches being essential. Now, the first thing I think we need to recognize is that uh, that put the church in a category, the category of other businesses that are still under the directions of the CDC and the opening requirements and social distancing and all those things of that nature. And therefore, what we need to understand is that the president's statement reclassified the church in essence, and also he made the statement that he would override the governors if they did not comply uh, with reopening the churches. And he gave a statement about reopening them for this Sunday. Now, one thing we need to understand as far as the constitutionality of that statement is that the president has the power to influence, he has the power to even uh, encourage, and he has the power to instruct, but he does not have the constitutional power to override the governors of each individual state. Now, as much as I love and appreciate our president, stand behind him and support him, uh, he made this statement, I do believe, in a manner that was packaged more to direct itself to the governors to say, you know what, you're all or many of you are coming to me for money, like the state of California is asking for $54 billion. And he, in essence, is saying to them, listen, then let's play ball together. Because constitutionally, according to the 10th Amendment of the United States, under the separation of powers that our federal government is established under, as well as our state governments are established under, the state has more power over the people within its boundaries than the federal government. Now the separation of powers divides the leadership of our federal government into the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And state governments are modeled after that same pattern. There's a governor who would be equal to the role of the president, 
there is a legislature that would be equal to the role, state legislature that would be equal to the role of the Senate and Congress, and then there is the judicial branch. The executive branch enforces the law, the uh, legislative branch writes the law, and the judicial branch interprets the law, and that's how our country operates. And as I said, the 10th Amendment gives power to the states to operate within the Constitution and enforce and direct the laws of the state as well as those of the land. Now, <clears throat> I say that for this reason, and I want to mention what we're going to be doing here at CCT uh, next Sunday with this caveat. Recognizing the situation that we're in, corporately as a church in the state of California, we need to understand something that happened this past Friday night. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the governor of California stating he has every right to call for the shutdown of all the churches for health reasons here in California, the shutdown of the collective gathering that is. So this is a interpretation of the law by the judicial branch of the government here in the state of California. Now we have been seeking legal counsel at every level following the directives of one of the main uh, legal groups that is directing the church through this particular process. And what they have been telling us to do is to stay in touch with law enforcement. Don't contact the city council. Don't worry about what the mayor says. Find out what law enforcement says. Now, law enforcement has said in Orange County and to us uh, directly that, uh, you know, they're not going to try and hinder what's going to happen on the 31st. However, they ask that because of our situation, we not meet in person on the 24th or today. So we have cooperated with law enforcement. We haven't bowed down to the government. We haven't uh, forsaken God's command for us to assemble together. We're operating wisely in a time such as this that will keep us and many other churches from, having, uh, from, from being shut down basically for violating the law or a contract. Now, here's the thing. Our intention as of this moment right now is to open up for in-person services next Sunday. And we're going to have to make some adjustments because of the limited capacity that we have as far as seating. And we've made a calculation of about 125 people being seated in the sanctuary, practicing the social distancing guidelines that have been established. Now, <clears throat> that's going to require that we increase our number of services and we're going to go back to three services. And again, this is our intention for next Sunday. Service times will be at 7.45, 9.30, and 11.30. And also we, according to the guidelines offered by the CDC and the Orange County Health Authority, we will not be offering childcare, uh, but we will be having family services, likely for the duration of this shutdown. Our junior high and high school are going to meet outside, practicing social distancing guidelines, and uh, we will meet in here uh, as a church. Now listen, if you're at an at-risk category or age bracket where uh, you're not comfortable coming into this setting, then uh, please stay home and watch online. Of course, we don't want to be participants in spreading this virus, and we don't want anyone who is uncomfortable even uh, with the idea of meeting together as a gathering to be put in that situation where they are in conflict with their own conscience. So with that, Stay home if that's how you feel more comfortable and continue to join us online because after all, the word of God is getting out. Now the other half of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals statement or judgment that they rendered favoring the governor of California 
has now been packaged with the fact that he's made a statement that he's going to make an announcement on Monday concerning the reopening of the churches. So that is going to determine really the direction, I think, for all churches in California as to what we're going to do. So I say that for uh, just a word of instruction. Stay tuned to the website. Stay tuned to our app as we all make our way through this season of church history that is unlike any other. And again, let's be more courteous and cautious about our engagements online and not uh, be accusatory of pastors being cowards or bowing to the government uh, because they're operating in a manner that will allow them to keep their place open uh, whenever things do open up and not be evicted for practicing illegal activities on their property. So again, let's just be in prayer as we continue to move forward. And as I said, our intention for next Sunday is to open up and to do what uh, the law enforcement uh, officers and those in charge here in our city have uh, told us to do. And uh, we want to make sure that we can operate with their uh, blessing and with us in cooperation with them. So who knows, things have been changing uh, so radically and rapidly uh, in these past days. And one other thing I think we need to recognize now, I want you to listen close. In a time of massive civil unrest or civil disobedience, the governor of any given state has the right to declare martial law. And the governor of California has already said he has the right and ability and potentially could enact martial law here in the state of California. So listen, this issue is far bigger than just, hey, you can't tell us what to do. Or, hey, you're violating our First Amendment rights. And we need to understand also the First Amendment is a prohibition to Congress to not write laws forbidding free press, the exercise of religion, and the right to redress our uh, grievances with the government and the right to assemble. So let's be constitutionally smart and aware and not make statements out there, especially in the public arena, that actually aren't true and make the church uh, look as though it's ignorant of the laws of the land. So let's move forward with wisdom. Let's move forward understanding the potential outcome, recognizing who our governor is, what his position is, and this will be what guides our decisions over this coming week in response to what he says. But as I mentioned, at this point in time, our intention is next Sunday with uh, some 1,200 churches in the state of California, we have every intention of opening up for in-person services limited to 125 persons each, and there will be no childcare. High school, junior high will meet outside. And here's the other thing, you need to go to the website and sign up, and we'll open signups or registration on each Friday before any given Sunday for as long as this thing is going to last. So again, that's my announcement portion and maybe a little bit of a, a constitutional clarity as to how we need to move forward uh, during this time. So with that said, would you open your Bibles there at home or wherever you may be to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll look at verses 1 through 12 today. Now, our verses are going to remind us of a very important truth. No matter what passage of scripture we may be examining at any given point in time. Acts chapter 20 records that truth in verses 25 to 26 where Paul said, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, much like 1 and 2 Corinthians, but unlike 1 and 2 Timothy, 
unlike 1st and 2nd Peter and unlike 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we can tell that there is a contextual relationship between the two letters Paul wrote to the church at Thessaloniki. In other words, the other epistles that I mentioned are simply individual letters inspired of the Holy Spirit for our instruction and learning, while 1st and 2nd Corinthians have a relationship with each other, as do 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and they record an ongoing conversation between the Apostle Paul and the saints of those two cities. Now I say that because the content of 1st Thessalonians establishes the context of 2nd Thessalonians, and simply addressing 2nd Thessalonians without any acknowledgement of the context that was set in the first letter that Paul wrote has led to many interpretations and even misinterpretations of these unique verses that we will look at this morning. Now, here's the context or the content that will set the context for us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, Paul says, but concerning the times and season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, meaning live or die, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Now, let me interject a little thought here before we move on. Acts 17 tells us that Paul was in Thessaloniki, establishing a church and teaching a church for a mere three Sabbaths, or uh, three weeks in total. And he says to them in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, there is no need for me to write to you about the day of the Lord, for in those three weeks I taught you about those things. Now I say that because it tells us that Paul, within his limited time of three Sabbaths, he taught prophecy because he believed it to be, if I can use the word, essential to the understanding of new believers. And listen, we are not to be ignoring Bible prophecy, especially in a time when we're watching it be fulfilled. It's also important to note that Paul uses four specific pronouns in relation to a time frame he referred to as the day of the Lord. He used they and them and we and us. And he also used you. And therefore, he said, they will say peace and safety and sudden destruction will come upon them. He is distinguishing them from the other group where he says, but you brethren, which indicates that they are not among the brethren and we are not of the night or the darkness, indicating that the group labeled as they and them are indeed of the darkness. So we have to ask the question, what is the day of the Lord? When does it begin and end? 
Who does it relate to? How does it impact they and them versus the you and we? Now, first of all, the day of the Lord is a phrase that is associated specifically to the nation of Israel. And that implies that Israel will be center stage on the world scene during the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord actually encompasses two time periods. One of seven years, known as the tribulation, and the 70th week of Daniel, where God purifies through fire the nation of Israel and brings them to repentance while he punishes those who fought against Israel and therefore him. And Zechariah 14, 1-4 tells us, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off, a Hebraism for killed, from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now this passage tells us a few things. One, 16 times in Zechariah chapter 12 to 14, we find the phrase in that day. That day that is being referred to is the day of the Lord, as we just read. A day where Israel's enemies are destroyed by the hand of God. And it's also a time when the earth dwellers who follow after the beast are going to experience God's wrath to the degree that if Jesus didn't come back and bring it to an end, he himself said in Matthew 24, 22, that no flesh would survive. But we also see that in the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, a transition takes place where we hear of the Mount of Olives being split in two. And it introduces a time of blessing symbolized by what happens when the mountain splits. In Zechariah 14, 8, we're told and in that day, in the day of the Lord, that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and half of them toward the Western Sea. Uh, that would be the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. Now, this tells us that the day of the Lord is inclusive of the thousand year blessing where Christ reigns on the earth and we with him. Now remember the headquarters of Jesus' kingdom during the millennial reign on the earth is Jerusalem, Israel, according to Zechariah 14, 17. And thus the day of the Lord, the time of judgment, as well as the season of blessing relate directly to Israel geographically. And we as God's people or Israel uh, uh, nationally in the first portion. Now, the day of the Lord impacts Jew and Gentile alike, but the defining factor of what makes you in one category or the other, the they and them and the you and we, relates to the church age specifically, which is outside of the day of the Lord. Now, the contextual relationship from what we're about to read comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, where we're told that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Now, here's what we're about to look into. 
persecution of the church had become so widespread, it was impacting even this infant church in the, in the city of Thessaloniki. And the saints there were thinking because of what was happening to them, the violence that was happening to them, that they were in the day of the Lord. So Paul responds to that thought and says, these specific things have to happen in order for the day of the Lord to come about. And then he leans into uh, the tribulation period a bit and gives us an overview of what will happen there. So having set the context or the content, let's now look at the context of his reply. And if you would read along with me, and if you'd like at home, uh, stand up and let's read together 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 11. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And Lord, we ask your aid in unraveling this text, that we might see it with clarity and within its context, that we might have comfort and also be reminded of the great hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we're thankful. Help us all through this weird time that we're in as a nation and world. And Lord, I pray most of all that you help the church remain steadfast and to take thoughts captive that we might operate as we speak the truth in love and uh, continue in the manner in which you have called us to display to the world that we are your people, bought with your blood, called by your name. Help us, Lord, to see the shortness of the hour and to have the uh, passion increase today for lost souls who are perishing around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are synonymous terms. And it is actually translated, as we have it in our text, the day of Christ. Some Bibles render it as the day of the Lord. Now, that links our verses with those of 1 Thessalonians 5. And that tells us that the first thing that we need to recognize that Paul is addressing or reminding the Thessalonian Christians and he uh, taught them during his three-week visit there is that the pre-tribulation rapture is established in verse 1 by the phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Now, let me get a couple things out of the way and we'll address this in more detail in a couple of moments. 
Some say the rapture is recorded in the latter portion of our verses under the phrase falling away and the Greek word apostasia. I've had people tell me online that me believing that uh, verse 1 is actually talking about the rapture is a Johnny come lately in the interpretive scene of this phrase. And I have to say, I find that to be a rather bizarre statement in light of the fact that being gathered together to him requires being where he is. And that's why Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper in John 14, 1 to 3, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, this requires a supernatural translation of living human beings into the presence of the Lord, bypassing death. And there's one generation that is going to enjoy that. And I do believe that we are that generation. Now, gathering is the act. To him is the destination. And combined with what Jesus told his disciples to be gathered to him requires action on his part that allows us to meet him in the air and a destination, which is the Father's house. Now, some would like to argue that the Greek word parousia, translated as coming, relates only to the second coming and never to the rapture. Well, that doesn't hold water because parousia is used in verse 9 when talking about the coming of the lawless one. It is not something that is strictly exclusive uh, to the second coming of Christ. And listen, if believing the rapture is identified by the phrase gathering to him is new, I would agree. It's New Testament. It is what the New Testament teaches. And I stand in good company with uh, the father of modern uh, Bible interpretation or prophecy interpretation, Dr. John Walvern, Dr. Mark Hitchcock holds the same opinion as does Dr. Thomas uh, Constable and other well-respected Bible teachers and theologians. Now, what that tells us is that the day of the Lord cannot happen until the rapture of the church happens first. Now, remember the purpose of Paul's letter is to tell the church at Thessaloniki, you're not in the day of the Lord. It hasn't happened yet because we haven't been gathered to him. You haven't missed the gathering together of the church to the Lord. And then he moves on to make his case saying, let no one deceive you, which implies there will be attempts to deceive, attempts to deny the pre-tribulation rapture. And then says that day, the day of the Lord cannot come unless the falling away comes first. And that tells us the second prerequisite to the day of the Lord and before the rapture will be a falling away, an apostasia, as I mentioned ago, which makes the point that if the rapture of the church is not the gathering to him and the rapture of the church is actually the apostasia or the apostasia, what exactly is the gathering to the Lord mean? What is the interpretation of that if it's not the rapture? And again, this is why context is so important and why we brought in 1 Thessalonians 5. The context is a concern that the church was in the tribulation. The context is a concern that the rapture hadn't happened and they were in the 70th week of Daniel. And Paul said, no, you can't be in the day of the Lord because these things happen before the day of the Lord. 
Now, again, back to what I mentioned earlier, there are those who argue that apostasia can be translated as departure, and it can be, but its main definition is a defection from truth. Now, they say it can mean a change of location, and this is what the rapture, or where the rapture is actually recorded in this passage. Now, listen, departure implies action on the part of believer. Listen, we do nothing to participate in the rapture. The Lord simply comes and grabs us off the surface of the earth, translates us into a glorified state, and we are forever with him. The rapture is action taken solely on the part of God. Nothing is done by man. We don't depart. We're caught up and caught away. And secondly, the word is used in the Bible only in relationship to a departure from truth. It never means a change of location. In Acts 21, 21, Paul was accused and we're told that they had informed the council that had been formed about Paul that he teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake apostasia, Moses, Moses being representative of the Old Testament law, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which by the way, 200 out of the 300 New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word apostasia is used two places in the Old Testament, and you guessed it, it is consistent with the usage of the word in the New. In Joshua 20, 20, 22, 22, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it is in apostasia, rebellion, or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. Jeremiah 2.19 says, your own wickedness will correct you. Wickedness, apostasia, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God. Apostasia, translated as rebellion against God. Jeremiah, it's translated as wickedness, which is defined as forsaking the Lord. Now, let me throw this in the interpretive mix. Some believe that the defection of truth or from truth will happen in its fullness after the church is gone and all things logical and true will be de uh, defected from on a global scale as the uh, book of Revelation or by those who are defined in the book of Revelation as earth dwellers. But because the narrative is not a strict chronology, it is more likely, I believe, that the defection from truth is within a group known as God's people, which is consistent with every other use of the word. The Jews forsook God's word in their history multiple times, and they are indeed, and still today, God's people. Now, here's why I believe, at least in part, the defection from truth happens prior to the rapture. For Paul says, speaking to the church during the church age, in 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from, what's it say there at home on the screen? Turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. This is the defection from truth that Paul speaks of here to the church at Thessaloniki. This is the falling away, the defection from sound apostolic doctrines that the church was founded on and has held throughout the centuries. 
and being replaced with feel-good sermons that tickle the ears of the listener. Now, Paul tells the church at Thessaloniki, the day of the Lord hasn't come. You haven't missed the rapture because the falling away hasn't happened yet. Now, this identifies the falling away as something specific to a time period and not the general defections from truth that has always been present throughout the course of church history. And what this implies is a mass defection from long-held truths within the church during the season of the last days prior to the day of the Lord. Now, Paul then reminds the church that the man of sin can only rise to power during the day of the Lord, and he cannot rise to power until the restraining force is taken out of the way or the restrainer is taken out of the way. Now, let me remind you of a couple of things regarding the book of Revelation. In the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John, there is an outline that he is told to use and follow by one who identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega, a phrase uh, uh, specifically used and exclusively used for God himself. The first and the last who is alive and was dead, whose appearance caused John to faint because he was so magnificent in his glory. And his description is further outlined in Revelation 19. Revelation 1.19, John is given this outline. Right, there's a command. And here's the format. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, John is told to write, and verse 3 said, as does uh, chapter 22, verse 7, that there is a blessing associated with those who read and keep the words of this prophecy, and then the outline is given. John is told, write the things that you've seen already. Write down this scene. Write what's happening right now in this vision as you are in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Then write the things which are, the things of the church age, which are written in chapters 2 and 3 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then write the things that will happen after the church age, beginning in chapter 4 and beyond. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are parenthetical. In other words, they record a scene that is outside of the chronology, so to speak, but also within it. Now, how's that for a profundity? Chapters 4 and 5 record a heavenly scene in which all of those in heaven and earth who have ever lived or died are examined for their worthiness to open the scroll that, it is, that is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Now, the only one worthy to open the scroll in heaven and earth who have ever lived and died was a lamb as if it was slain, who is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that out there, church? That's Jesus, the root of David, the descendant of David. And David was of Judah as well. Jesus was his earthly descendant. Now, in chapter 6, the scene returns to the earth with the things that John had seen and the things that are now in the rearview mirror, John begins to write what happens on the earth after the church age has come to an end and the heavenly scene recorded uh, introduces chapter 6 and beyond up to 22. Now, Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now, pay close attention. Revelation 6, 1 and 2 says, Now, I saw when the lamb, the lamb that was slain and found worthy to open the seals, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, this is the first seal, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse, 
And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, this is the Antichrist who rides out onto the world scene, who brings the world under his authority and initiates a seven-year covenant with Israel. Now, the bow without any mention of arrows, obviously that is a... Uh, uh, a group that is all, often placed together, and necessarily so, if you're going to engage in battle or pair together, I meant to say. And if you've got a bull with no arrows, that means that the attack or the conquering is going to take place through diplomacy, not mil militarily, at least for the moment. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, we were told the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, let's wrap all this up together. Where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit right now during the church age? The things which are. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is within you and me. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, as long as the church is present on the earth, the Antichrist cannot rise to power. So he rises to power after the things which are, after the things of Revelation 2 and 3, because even though the majority of the church will be apostate at the end of the age, there is going to be a faithful remnant of believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and therefore are a greater force than the forces of darkness and they must be taken out of the way for the day of the Lord to begin and the Antichrist to rise to power. Now the rapture happens after the falling away. The church being taken out of the way removes the restraining force of the Holy Spirit, allowing complete lawlessness to abound and God will no longer restrain Satan's attempts to put his man in power. And the first thing that happens during the day of the Lord is the Antichrist rides onto the world scene, conquers the world without a shot fired, so to speak. Now the concluding proof Paul presents of the day of the Lord, or concerning the day of the Lord, and that it had not come, is described by the actions and empowering of the man of sin and his impact on unbelieving mankind. So let's first take a look at the lawless one himself. Verse 9 told us that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the word parousia, translated as coming, is used here for the coming of the lawless one, proving again it is not a term exclusive to the second coming of Jesus. Now, there's another subtlety I think we need to take note of, and that is that the same word used to describe Jesus' second coming in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 2, the apocalypto, uh, the word means to take the cover off or fully disclose, is translated as re uh, in relation to the Antichrist as revealed here in verses 3, 6, and 8. So you've got a parousia associated with Jesus and the Antichrist, and you've got the apocalypto associated with Jesus and the Antichrist. And those two terms used being in association with each of these, uh, Christ himself and the one who is against him, assures us that this is Satan's final attempt 
to generate a Messiah-like world leader and deceiver. And with the proximity of the day of the Lord being as near as it is, it's very likely that this man is alive today. Now he is yet to be disclosed or revealed, but when he is, it will be within the day of the Lord, according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception. Now, this may imply the answer to the oft-asked question, does the Antichrist know he's the Antichrist? I don't think Judas knew that his name would become a synonym for betrayal throughout the ages, but he too was possessed by the devil at a point in time after he had followed Jesus with the other 11 disciples. The lawless one during the tribulation or early on is going to become so drunk with power that the devil possesses him and pushes him forward via the means described here, power signs, lying wonders, and unrighteous deception. Now the pinnacle of this man's power delusion will lead him to what we read of in verse 4, that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He exalts himself above all that is called God. I hope that calls to mind something familiar, specifically from Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, where the prophet says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now the similarity of the claims of Lucifer and the Antichrist tell us the, lawlessness, the lawless one is Satan's mimicry of the Son of God. And as the Father and Son share the same eternal domain, so too the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will join them in the lake of fire, and they will share the same eternal domain, according to Revelation 20.10. Now the lawless one is a satanically possessed and empowered man who works in tandem with another man possessed and empowered by Satan, and he is called the false prophet. Now in Revelation 13.11 to 14, John says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performed great signs so that he even makes fire, listen to this, he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, let me just say something about that last phrase, the wounding of the sword and living. Now, some say this represents the revived Roman Empire. Some say it represents the fact that the Antichrist is going to experience a pseudo-death and a mock resurrection. And this matter is debated amongst wonderful scholars, but it's the end result that's important. And just like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, so too the false prophet points to the false messiah. The first beast, and he tells the world to worship the beast or his image, 
And they have to prove their loyalty by taking a mark on their hand or forehead that bears his name or the number of his name. And thus he governs all global commerce and monitors that. And also in association with them as a worshiper of the beast who is satanically empowered uh, is also identified through that mark. Now he points to the first beast through great signs, including calling down fire from heaven. Now, again, this is a mimicry of what the Lord did through the prophet Elijah. This is one of the reasons that the Jews will initially follow after the beast. They are told, we are told in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, this is a phrase associated with the second half of the tribulation period, the day of Jacob's trouble, the... um, Great and terrible day of the Lord, a dreadful day of the Lord, where God pours out his undiluted wrath on the world. And yet Jesus said regarding Elijah in Matthew 17, 10 to 13, when the disciples asked him, saying, Why the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, some believe that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11. Again, that's a matter of debate. But what we do know is that when the false prophet calls down fire in the presence of the first beast, the Jews are going to be convinced that the false prophet is Elijah and the Antichrist is the Holy One of Israel until in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist is going to break the seven-year covenant. He is going to enter the Holy of Holies and he is going to declare himself to be God. Now think about the history of the Jews and someone who claims to be God. This is why they put Christ on the cross because he claimed to be the Son of God according to John 19, 7, and they will flee their cities when the Antichrist makes the same claim to be God. Now, the world, however, is going to have a different reaction to this proclamation of the Antichrist that he is God. In Revelation 13, 14 to 15, we're told he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and lived, as we read earlier, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I want you to think about this. If survival during the portion of the day of the Lord, this portion of the day of the Lord, is predicated upon a person's uh, belief in who the Antichrist is or the rejection of him, then we have another mimicry of the plan of God, dividing the world into two categories, believers and unbelievers, just like it's divided right now. The world, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. The Antichrist is going to say the same thing through the false prophet. You're either for me or against me. And those who are against him will die. Only the death that is mentioned there is the first death uh, leading to most likely for many, sadly, the second death. Now, the death that is experienced by those who reject Jesus will include, of course, the first death and the second as well. So again, Satan is mimicking and mocking that which the Lord has done and what the Bible has recorded. Now, because the earth dwellers did not receive the love of the truth, God will send them strong 
delusion. Do we live in an age of delusion today? Absolutely. That they might believe the lie told by the Antichrist about who he is. Now we are told that this group did not receive the love of the truth because they desired the practice of unrighteousness. But later we're told they didn't receive the love of the truth because they didn't believe the truth. Now listen close. That does not mean that anyone who heard the gospel before the rapture can't get saved during the tribulation. That's not what that means at all. What it does mean is that those who arrived at their final decision about the gospel of Christ before the rapture and ensuing tribulation will be sent a strong delusion from God that causes them to believe the Antichrist lie. And thus we see this written of them in Revelation 6, 15 to 17, where the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man or people from all walks of life and financial statuses hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, they cry out to creation instead of repenting before the creator. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Now listen, this happens at the opening of the sixth seal during the first three and a half year period of the tribulation, thus eliminating the mid-trib and pre-wrath positions of the rapture as possibilities because the whole seven years is the wrath of God. Now, the main point I want to make is that the earth dwellers know that they are under the wrath of him who sits on the throne and of the lamb, and yet they do not repent. Their rejection of the gospel is final, and therefore they will believe the lie of the Antichrist that he is God. Now, as we wrap things up this morning, remember, the saints in Thessaloniki thought the day of the Lord had come because of all the persecution they were experiencing as believers. Paul said, no, before the day of the Lord, there will be a mass defection from truth. He said, before the day of the Lord, we're going to be gathered together to him, thus removing uh, the restraining force of the Holy Spirit through the church and allowing the lawless one to rise to power who will come forth with all power signs and lying wonders and unrighteous deception. Now, for us today, I believe the defection from truth is fully underway. We see a multitude of teachings today that deny and defy the apostolic doctrines that the church was established and has built, been built on through the centuries. There's a movement today called the hyper-grace movement, and they hold to a teaching or belief called antinomianism, which simply means no law. They believe there's no law. And when the Bible talks about lawlessness abounding, I'd be very cautious about following anyone who teaches openly that there is no law. And in their minds, that means there's no moral standard by which a Christian is to live, since we are saved by grace. And yet the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, moral purity, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we have those today who have millions of followers because their teaching tickles the ears of the listener. And their message is this, every Christian should be materially wealthy and you can be too by faith. And yet Jesus said, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom because it's easy for the rich to trust in their riches instead of God. That's not a sin to be rich and money is an evil. It's an animate 
And the love of many, however, is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is not the root of all evil, as some of the Bible says. But many pierce themselves through with sorrows because they have a love of money. Now, there are those today who are infatuated with signs and wonders. There's even a group today who claim to be apostles like those of the initial church age. And they're called the New Apostolic Reformation. And they claim apostolic authority and power and claim to have been chosen by God to make the world ready for Christ's return through the church having dominion over the world. And they teach what is called the Seven Mountain Mandate. Now, the Seven Mountain Mandate says the church must have dominion over the educational system, over the religious system of the world, over matters of family, over all business. The church must have dominion over the government and military. The church also must have dominion over the arts and entertainment and media industries in order for Christ to return. Now, what book of the Bible is that in? You're not going to find it. This is something that has been manufactured by those who are trying to seize power in the form of false apostles and prophets in these last days. None of those things are biblical, and yet there are masses of followers of people who follow those who teach these heresies. Listen, Jesus isn't coming back when things are orderly. Jesus is coming back when things are an absolute disaster and mess on the face of the earth, morally and spiritually. Jesus is coming back when the world is a huge mess and moving toward the total rejection of good and calling good evil and evil good. And listen, we have been watching this happen with our own eyes. In the very short spans of time, in less than three months, the march toward globalism has been accelerated at an exponential rate. We're hearing about digital identities and currency and all these other things and vaccines that are mandatory that have your uh, personal information, your medical information stored on it. And the mechanics of this and the technology necessary for this are already in place and things are ready for the Antichrist to rise to power. But even in the midst of all we see, we have to take the counsel of Paul to the church at Thessaloniki. The day of the Lord hasn't come. I see people all the time who online say something about right now we're in the midst of the uh, seals being opened. The six seals of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No, we are not because their day can't come and it happens during the day of the Lord and it can't come until there's a defection from truth within the church until the church is removed from the surface of the earth and the restraining force of the Holy Spirit in, in the church is removed and only then can the lawless one ride out on the world scene on the white horse at the opening of the first seal. Now, here's what I'm going to leave you with today. Jesus said in the heart of his longest answer to any question that he was ever asked, it's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's recorded in Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24 and 25. And Jesus said this in the midst of it, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Listen, if you think the church has to get the world ready for the return of the Lord, you're not expecting him to come anytime soon because the world is a mess. And the church does not have dominion over the areas that the seven mountain mandate requires, not even close to it. Now, the day of the Lord is at hand. And during that time, the lawless one will rise to power. And what is hindering his rise to power is the presence of the church on earth. 
And the rapture is the only possible means for the removal of the church corporately before God's wrath begins and the 70th week of Daniel is fulfilled. So here's the question. Are you ready? The signs are all around us and it is quite clear that we are closing out the church age. John wrote the things that he saw, the things that caused him to pass out, the magnificent uh, uh, manifestation of the glorified Christ that he saw that caused him to faint. And then he was told to move on, write the things which are, write the things of the church age. And then he said, there's going to be things that happen after the church age. And he wrote those down as well. And we mentioned quite a few of them in front of us and let, or, or previously. And let me say this, all these things point to the fact that while we don't know the day or the hour, the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is near when God is going to remove his church, which allows for the rise of the Antichrist and also the balance of the judgments that are unfulfilled concerning Israel and bringing them to a place where Zechariah says, finally, at the second coming of Jesus, they will look upon him whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. We are moving that way. And yet Jesus said, and gave the directive to be ready because the son of man, a messianic title, at least in this context, is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, what Jesus is saying is when it's time for him to come for the church, there'll be a low expectancy level of the rapture. And that's what's happening today. People are denying the fact that the rapture is a biblical doctrine. People are having their ears tickled and not being told about prophecy when Paul thought it worthy to mention and teach in detail over a three-week span of time in the city of Thessaloniki. Many are ignoring, saying Bible prophecy is not today. Others are saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament because it's irrelevant during the New Testament age, and yet there are myriads of Old Testament prophecies that relate to the time that's about to happen in Ezekiel and Daniel and elsewhere, Isaiah as well, speaking of both the, uh, the, uh, the day of the Lord in the sense of the tribulation and the day of the Lord of the millennial reign of Christ, specifically and especially in the latter chapters of Ezekiel and Isaiah. Things are ready. Now all we're waiting for is that trumpet to sound, which is the last trumpet of the church age, it's not the last trumpet of the seven blown during the tribulation, but it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a call for the church to come home. Are you ready? The only way to be ready is to have a personal relationship with Christ, to have your sin forgiven, to confess him as Lord and Savior, and acknowledge that he is exactly who the Bible presents him to be. That's the only way one can be saved, and it's the very definition of being born again. So if you're not born again, there's a time coming upon the whole world that if Jesus didn't come to stop it, no flesh would survive. So I suggest to you that you get things right with the Lord, even now, even at this very moment, and confess that he is the Lord. Now, listen, to con uh, confess is an interesting word. It means to see as or speak of as the same. In other words, when you make the confession that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is presented metaphorically as the word of God, you're saying that you believe that Jesus is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world and you believe the Bible is the word of God and therefore it is infallible and inspired and you're agreeing with all of its statements, precepts and doctrines as written and not taking a cut and paste approach to the Bible like many do today. That's part of the great falling away is saying that this has nothing to do with us today. It was written specifically and related only to that particular season of history when it's something that is a moral statute for all people to obey. And that would include marriage and a host of other things that we are to believe the Bible's definitions of and reject man's redefinitions of, just like 
Satan has tried to redefine everything God has said and lead people astray through the ages. So Jesus said you must be born again. That means you must be born again. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That means Jesus, if you love him, you have to keep his commandments. There's just no interpretation needed. So if you would like to accept Christ as your Savior and your Lord and recognize that he is the authority over all creation, and if you would like to live the rest of your life in accordance with his word and have the expectation of an instantaneous and permanent translation into his presence via the rapture of the church, you can do so right now by simply saying this. Lord Jesus, I recognize you are who the Bible says you are. I submit my life to you and ask that you cleanse me from my sin and that you forgive me of them all and that you place your Holy Spirit within me and that now I can become accepted in the beloved because of the blood of Christ covering my sins. I thank you for my forgiveness. I thank you for the imparting of the Holy Spirit into my life and help me to live the rest of my life for you. And listen, if you pray that, if you say that to the Lord in sincerity, he's forgiven every sin you've ever committed or will. And he has given you his Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of your future inheritance that we talked about today in heaven. And you can expect fully when the time comes in a moment of twinkling of an eye where he snatches his church off the face of the earth, allowing the day of the Lord to begin. And you have the assurance of being taken with the rest of the church. So... Be encouraged. It's an exciting time to be alive. The day of the Lord is at hand, but for the church, we have no relationship with it because we don't have an appointment with wrath. Therefore, Christians, go tell people about Jesus. He's the only one who can snatch him from the surface of the earth before literally all hell breaks loose on this planet. So with that said, pray with me, please. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're grateful for the things that we have seen and heard. And Lord, thank you that you have uh, determined that we are to live in such a time as this, a time where we, like Esther, have the responsibility of seeking to deliver other people. And Lord, we can only deliver them through the preaching of the word. They can't call on him whom they have not heard of, and uh, they can't hear of him unless we preach or proclaim the truth. So help us, Lord, to have a greater passion than ever before for those who are lost around us as the hour is late, time is short, the day is at hand. And we thank you for the promise and comfort that we won't see any portion of the tribulation, but that we will be rescued from it all, snatched away from the surface of the earth by your power and authority. And we thank you that you can do all things and nothing is impossible for you, including grabbing a massive number of people off the face of the earth and taking them home in a moment and twinkling of an eye. We give you praise and glory. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, remember, keep checking the website. Uh, we want to see what's going to unfold in these next few days. But as I said, our intention is fully to have in-person church next Sunday, but you will have to register uh, beginning on Friday through cctustin.org. God bless you all.